Now, last time we discovered that this second chapter of the book of Ezra has a register of all those who returned from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel, prince of Judah. And we took a night and we dealt with Zerubbabel, and he is clearly a type of Christ because his commission was to build a temple. And Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Zerubbabel came from the tribe of Judah and that's the tribe the Lord Jesus Christ came from. And from this register last time, we learned that God knows the number of his people. Numbers are almost in every line of this uh, chapter. And in the second place, the Lord knows the names of his people. It's full of names, difficult names to pronounce. And then also the needs of his people God provided, the priests and the Levites and the porters, etc., etc., to meet the needs of the people. So God made provision for the needs of the people. He also takes account of their possessions. And from these concluding verses of this second chapter, I want to set before you three features of the spiritual life of God's people. Very simple things. In the first place, let's talk for a little time about the goal of God's people. The goal of God's people. Now, Ezra wrote nothing about the long trip back to the land of Israel. It could have been 900 miles, 1,000 miles. Ezra doesn't mention anything about what the people experienced during that difficult time. But the people succeeded. They completed the journey that they had commenced. And that is the desire of every child of God here, no doubt, to complete the journey that we have commenced in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it should be noted that these exiles were not at liberty altogether from foreign yoke. We've got to take that into account. In verse 1, the returning exiles are described as children of the province. That is, the Persian province of Judea. Though they came back to their own land at this time, they had simply migrated within the boundaries of an empire, that is, the Persian Empire, and were therefore subject to the rule of the king. Never again did the people have a king. And when the Lord Jesus, and when he was crucified, the title King of the Jews, when he came, their true king, they rejected him. And subsequently he was nailed to that old Roman cross. And the people who returned were still subject to the rule of the king, and they continued to be subject to the dominion of each successive imperial power. First of all, they were subject to the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. However, when they returned to Jerusalem, they did so with a keen desire to serve God and a keen desire for the things of God. Not only did they return to the land, but they returned to the Lord. That has to be emphasized. So we can see clearly that the Lord restored his people. He brought them from Babylon, as we discover in verse 1, back to Jerusalem. 
he chastened them, and the chastening was very effective because they never did go back to idolatry after this. So the chastening of the Lord was productive. It dealt with the problem, the sin that caused them to be carried away. And we can see now a new zeal for the things of God. So they've lost out with God. They suffer the consequences of doing that. The Lord restores them. The Lord brings them back. And now because of that, his mercy, they have fresh desires, new desires for the things of God. Now I thought about Psalm 51 this morning. I was up early in the study. And I thought about David's uh, Psalm 51. And David had sinned greatly. And I believe that he was miserable for the best part of the year. Some even think that he suffered from leprosy. I cannot prove that, but I know that he suffered a lot physically during that point of time. That, that was the chastening of God. And uh, it came to the point in the, the psalm when he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. That shows me he was depressed. And many of the things that depress us, uh, the child of God comes as a result of sin. Not all things. But I do believe in this case, uh, this depression that they had was, the, uh, was, the co was caused by his sin. Now, that word joy, I discovered this today as well. I thought it was a very good point. It comes from two different roots, Hebrew roots, the stems of the words. One means bright, and the other means lily or whiteness. And the point I want to make is this. David wanted to get back the joy that was as bright and as beautiful and white as a lily. Because God had chastened him. God had dealt with him. And as a result of that, then he wanted to get back to the place where once he had been. And then he went on to say, Uphold me by thy, thy, thy free spirit, thy Holy Spirit. That word uphold means to sustain. And David was really saying, I have sinned. I have gone astray. You have dealt with me. I felt that in my own physical frame. Now I want you to help me to keep me from sinning again. Because left to myself, uh, I will never make it. And so he's really saying, uphold me, strengthen me. Be my rock, be thou my uh, stronghold in the time of need. I want this joy back again. I want it more than anything else. And when I get that joy, I want to keep it. Don't want to lose it again. I've been through enough. I don't want to taste the chastening hand of God again. Then he says, then, then will I teach sinners thy way. So there is the restoration. Then there is the sustaining, the upholding of the Spirit of God. And now that he's right with God, then he says, then will I teach sinners thy way. He's now in a place, in a position before God where he can teach sinners from his own experience, what it means to serve God, what it means to sin against God, the consequences of rebelling against God. So uh, the people have been restored, the chastening have been effective, and now they have a great desire for the things of God. Now, I look upon this returning remnant of the Jewish people uh, to be the church of God, come to reinstate and come to promote the religion 
and worship of their God to bear witness for him. And their goal was to build the temple so that the worship of God might be restored. So if we look upon Zerubbabel as a type of Christ, then the people who returned, they were co-laborers with Zerubbabel and the great commission that he had been given by the king to build a temple. We can apply this to the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But we are co-laborers with him in this great work of building up the church of Jesus Christ by our witness, by our lives, and by our testimony. The goal was to build a temple so that the worship of God might be restored. And that's our responsibility. We have great responsibilities as the people of God. Now, it was a difficult task involving pressure, involving uh, much opposition from the enemy, as the book of Ezra shows, and we will discover this as we move into these other chapters. The church is now the temple of the living God. And we are to be devoted to him as his people. And our goal, as co-laborers with him, should be to add new stones to the temple by our behavior and by our active evangelism. And to achieve this, that we may experience the power of God that was promised to, to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might, but by my power. Not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's how Zerubbabel did the great work that God had uh, given him to do in the land of Israel. Power. Now, that's a challenge for us all. Sometimes I wonder when I preach, where is the power? And I'm sure many a time when you sit down to pray, you've said the same thing to yourself. Where's the power in my praying? It's a challenge to us all. And I feel that we need this power. That Zerubbabel experience that he knew coming upon him to do this great work that he was challenged and called to do. And we are called to be co-laborers with Christ in, in the work of evangelism and in building up the church of Jesus Christ. And we can't do it unless we have clean hands and pure hearts. That's it. Holiness, purity, serving God with all of our hearts and minds and souls. The goal of God's people, they revived, they were stirred, they were motivated, they got busy in the things of God, and we too should learn the lesson from this particular portion before us tonight. So there's the goal of God's people. What's your goal? What is your goal? What do you hope to achieve? What do we as a congregation hope to achieve? What about the future? What part will you play? What part will I play in the future of God's work here? Little if we do not experience this mighty power, this mighty anointing of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's the giving of God's people. Verses 68 and 69 provides information here about the, the offerings which are made by the people at the time when they return to the land. 
And this clearly shows there was a great spiritual work being done in the hearts of these people. And these verses are not just presenting a record of mere financial things. It takes us away beyond the giving itself to the spirit or the motivation that lay behind their giving. Behind this whole transaction. In the book of Acts, we read about Barnabas. He was a good man, an example to follow. He had a piece of property, he sold it, and he brought the entire proceedings, all that he received for that, and he laid it at the feet of the apostles to do a work for God. I don't know what the need was at that time, but there were needs. There was always a need in the work of God. But here was a man, pure of heart, a good man, an example. He sold the property. He gave the whole thing to the Lord. And then we have Ananias and uh, Sapphari, chapter 5, just the next chapter. Uh, so they, they do something. Now, they had a choice. Uh, they could have said, here's a small portion of the property we sold. Take this, and that would have been fine. But they pretended that the part they gave was the whole part, and they kept the other part to themselves. Now, it was theirs. They could have done exactly whatever they wanted to do, like we all do, apart for the Lord and keep the rest to meet their own needs. But they gave the impression, we're giving it all to Jesus. All for Jesus. We want to give it all to Jesus. They were hypocrites, you see. And you, you know that story only too well of how Ananias dropped dead. A few hours later, his wife dropped dead too. Two gone. Same day. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They put on a show. But these people in Ezra's time, way back in the days of Zerubbabel, they were giving from the depths of their heart. They were giving all that they could to sponsor, to promote the work of God at that particular point in time because there was a great need there. Now, what was given? 61,000 grams of gold. I don't know how much was involved in that. Seems a lot to me. 5,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot as well. And then 100 priests' garments. Now, we must not dwell upon the amounts and contents of the offerings. Yes, it's a lot. We rejoice in that. But we must not only dwell on what was given, the contents. Rather, we would do well to note the attitude and the spirit which lay behind it. They were doing it for Jesus. Now, there's the faithfulness of their giving. Verse 69 says they gave after their ability. Well, you think about the, the widow woman. She gave according to her ability. Her ability to give amounted to two mates. That's all that she had. That was everything she had. So when she gave, she gave everything that she had. Uh, she just gave it to the Lord because she loved the Lord's house and the Lord's work. But the rich came and they cast in much. And that was good. But the thing is, they had plenty left over. They, they could have given more. So when they gave, they may have given a large amount. But they still had quite a lot left for themselves. So Jesus says that the woman, when she cast in the two mites, cast in more than the rest of them. Because her heart was right. She gave it to Jesus. The faithfulness of her giving. 
They gave faithfully according to what they have, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Then the freeness of their giving. Some of the chief of the fathers offered freely, verse 68. There's no pleasure, no pressure applied. No appeals were made. The people came freely and willingly, and they left these things in the altar for God. They didn't have to be pressurized into giving. They didn't have to have a gun held at their head. They gave freely. It was Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary, who said, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never lack God's supply. That's really what happened way back in the days of Zerubbabel. Peter Marshall, I'm sure you have heard uh, the man called uh, Peter. Uh, he was chaplain, I'm not sure if it was to the president uh, of the United States of America many years ago. But he said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Let me say it again. Give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Where your treasure is, there is your treasure. Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. Now this congregation gives well. I'm so pleased with the uh, offerings that are given to the missionaries when they come. It's outstanding. And uh, the missionaries appreciate uh, what this congregation gives. And the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And these people were giving all that they have, even to uh, where it hurt, because they loved the Lord's house. It was given cheerfully and wealthily to the Lord. Now, the house of God lay in ruins. It had been raised to the ground 70 years before this. Where the house of God stood, there was just a, a pile of rubble, devastation. And yet they gave without hesitation because they just loved the house of God. And they wanted to see it erected again. They wanted to see its walls going up. They wanted the glory to come back again. They wanted to see God's name being magnified. And then the holy garments were there to adorn the priests. And their ministry was to point the people to Christ through the sacrifices, through the offerings. So when we keep Christ before us, it will be easy to give. When we keep Christ before us, it will be easy to do what we have to do for the glory of God. It will never be onerous. It will never be a burden to us. It will be a delight to serve Christ. And, and so they're giving out of their love for the house of God and their focus is upon the sacrifice. And when we have our focus on the sacrifice, everything becomes a lot easier. You see, David lost the joy of the Lord. He lost his way. He didn't pray. He didn't uh, get to the word. He just deteriorated for a whole year. And it showed on him physically. He was miserable until the time came when he was restored and revived. And God came and lifted the burden and touched his heart. They came to the house of the Lord, to the place where it, where it had been, where it stood. And they gave freely. For when God's time to work arrives, he causes his people to have love for his testimony. Do you love the work of God that you're associated with? Do you love the house of God that you're in tonight? Do you love the people in Korean for the glory of God? 
to love one another the way we ought to love one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. They offer freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. They believed, they believed that there was going to be a reviving of the work of God. That's why they gave. They gave with the goal of revival in their mind. And so they believed that God was going to visit that work again. God was going to visit this temple. And God was going to bless his temple in a powerful way. So there's the giving. And then finally, there is the grouping of God's people. In verse 70, we read, So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. So you have these various groupings mentioned before, the priests, the Levites, and so on. They're all there to minister to the needs of the people. And these groups rendered service to God, and every group had a work to do. It's a bit like the congregation here. You've got the, uh, the spiritual oversight, the, the elders in the church, they have a role to play. Then you have the deacons or the committee men, they have a role to play. You've got the Sunday school superintendent. You've got the young people's work. They all have different roles to do in the work of God. The secret is to work together for the overall good of the work of God. There's got to be this structure, this, this order in the house of God for the smooth running of the work of God. The way it was way back then, the smooth running of the temple. And in the temple of the church, there's a service for every Christian. I read something today. Uh, I smiled at it, but I thought that was good. There are two ways of being united. One is by being frozen together, and the other is being melted together. Frozen together or melted together. And when Christians, what Christians need is to be united in brotherly love, and then they may expect to have the power and see God working in their midst. That's it. That's the secret. Brethren dwelling together in unity. Another little thought I had as well, I continued to read on down the book, and I read this, and I thought this is good as well. Snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things. I hope we don't get them too soon. But just look at what they can do when they stick together. I read, I heard today about Michigan, in the United States, they've had a foot of snow already. Nightmare. But so you think about the little snowflake, beautiful. You look out the window, you've got a fire on, you've got a cup of chocolate or a cup of tea, and you're sitting there, your feet up, your slippers are on, the wife brings you a cup of tea and some toast, you're as happy as Larry. There's your happy man. And then you look out in the morning. Oh, we've got a shovel, this drive, and so on. Nightmare. Snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things, but just look at what they can do when they stick together. And that's the secret. That's the secret of this work here in the book of Ezra. They, they were sticking together for the glory of God. But it says here in verse 70, all Israel in their cities. But surely this wasn't all Israel in their cities. Just about 50,000 people returned from the land of Babylon from Persian exile. 50,000. I don't know how many millions were scattered throughout the other provinces of the Persian Empire. They settled down. They became prosperous. 
He didn't like the idea of having to travel a thousand miles back to the desolation and the promised land. So what does this refer to? All Israel and their cities. How surprising then it is to read all Israel. I think that these were representative. These represented it. These represented all Israel. They represented that. And they were in the promised land, the holy land, and the purpose of God, so that when the time came in God's providence, the Lord Jesus Christ would be born, the Lord Jesus Christ would live, and he would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. All Israel. Now much has been said by different people over the years about the so-called lost tribes of Israel, but the New Testament makes it clear that all 12 tribes were represented in this uh, remnant. Now, in 721, Israel, the northern kingdom, was carried away by the Assyrians. Okay. Then, over 100 years later, the people of Judah were carried away to Babylon. And while most of the people who returned at this time came from Judah, there would have been others who had been scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, dwindled back to the land of Israel. So most of the people would come from Judah, but there would have been others from the northern tribes coming back as well. Uh, in fact, in uh, Ezra chapter 6, 17, uh, 12 he goats were offered for the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, Anna, she was of the tribe of Asher. Matthew 4, 13 refers to Zebulon and Naphtali. Acts chapter 26, verse 7, and James 1, verse 1, talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes continued in existence. Consequently, when this remnant is referred to as all Israel, the term must be understood then from the representative perspective. The remnant occupied in the land the name of the entire nation. Now, now this idea of British Israelitism uh, goes way back to 1870. And uh, there are people who hold this view uh, that uh, England or Great Britain uh, would be the direct uh, descendants of the ten lost tribes. And so that is their theory. It's not scriptural, of course because we have proof in the word of God that the ten tribes were not lost. They were scattered. They, were, they got involved or they, they got incorporated in the P Persian Empire. But when the opportunity came for them to return, they came back. And so here we see this, uh, these 12 tribes, these 12 he-goats, 12 tribes are mentioned. They didn't go out of existence. And so we have three simple things. We have the goal of the people of God to be co-laborers, was Zerubbabel and building the temple, that's Christ and his people, co-laborers together with him. The giving of the people of God, they, they saw the need, they bent over backwards, they gave what they could, they were faithful in giving, they gave a, a huge amount and uh, they dedicated themselves to the temple, the building, the work, because they knew that God was going to come and revive. And really, this is the temple that Jesus walked in. 
And in that sense, the glory that filled this temple that stood for 500 years, built by Zerubbabel, the glory was greater than that of uh, Solomon's temple. Now, when the glory came and filled Solomon's temple, that was a great occasion. But when Jesus Christ walked in this temple, 500, 500 years later, thereabouts, he is the glory of God. So it far, it far exceeded the greatness because of that. He actually came and walked in that temple. And then you have the groupings. You have the various uh, groups. They had all something to do in the Lord's work. They all blended and worked together for the praise and the glory of God. So think about the snowflakes. It comes to enough. But when you see the first snowflake, think about Ezra. Think about the unity. Brethren dwelling together in unity. May God bless his word tonight. For his name's sake, we'll get down to have our time of prayer.